Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and I am pleased to welcome back Jason Cavell. How are you, sir? Dana, thank you, my man. It's good to be back. Uh, I really enjoyed the first interview, and I'm excited to talk to you again today. Absolutely. Now, the idea behind having you back so relatively quickly after the we released the episode on your latest project, Running with the Devil, which is out now, and it is just, again, listeners, if you haven't seen it yet, Stop what you're doing. Go see the movie. Come back and listen to this conversation. But we talked a lot about how you got that movie made, and we talked some anecdotes and, and about the story and everything. And what I really want to do this time is I want to get to know you as the filmmaker, and I want to know growing up what were the movies that impacted you. I mean, I'm, I'm just genuinely curious about you know your opinion on so many different types of movies. So I, I got a lot of questions to ask you today. So I think this is going to be a lot of fun, and I think it's going to be great to get to know you and get, let the listeners get to know you a lot. Lot better. So let's just jump in, Jason. First question I have is what is the first movie you remember having a real impact on you? And there's a couple follow up questions to that. What age were you? And then inevitably, how do you feel about that movie now? All right. So I think the first I, uh, movie that had such an impact on me was Jaws. And, you know, my mom was really cool. And I got to see a lot of, like, she took me to see Richard Pryor on the Sunset Strip when it was at the, and all the Monty Python movies. And we saw Jaws. I was a tiny little kid, my sister and I. And I, at that point, I thought that if you go in the ocean, you're going to get eaten by a shark. 100% chance. It wasn't like how random it really is. So, you know, my grandparents had a place in Florida uh, up, up near um, Longbow Key in Venice, Nokomis, and there's shark teeth all over the beach. <laughs> I remember I was like, I didn't even get too close to the edge of the water because I was picking up the shark's teeth, which furthered my uh, my theory that, yeah, if you go set foot in that ocean, there's sharks just waiting to snap at you and eat you. So. Well, what's interesting about that is uh, longtime listeners of the show know that that is my all-time favorite movie. And yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It, it, it really is. And what is it about that movie? I mean, a couple things about Jaws. Why I always like to say, one, it set the standard for the summer blockbuster. It was the first yes. film to really get a national release when so many movies were released regionally. It's essentially, Jason, at its core, Jaws is a B-movie. It's a B-movie about a shark that attacks people. What, in your opinion, makes this film stand out so much above the other sort of schlocky B-movies that came out in the 70s about, you know, creatures attacking people? I, it's the characters. I mean, the ship's captain, the, the police officer, all the scientists, the flow for that movie with the characters, and you really care about them, and you latch onto them, but the the flow of that movie, yeah, it was definitely not B, and I think the timing of the beats and the scene structure and how it moves forward, and it builds and it builds and it builds. I've heard people call it a horror movie, and I, I guess you could look at it that way, too, uh, in some instances, but I just... Man, I, I thought the characters were super developed and great. And I want to clarify that I do not think Jaws is a B-movie. <laughs> right. Oh, no, I agree. I, but I, I do believe that in theory... The idea behind the it sounds like a typical oh, sure, B movie. Sure. So. Oh no! Well, now how many shark? I mean, there's another one that's just coming out now. I mean, there's, there's been dozens and dozens. I saw the Meg last year, and the Meg made a ton of money. But they're all kind of they owe just like a lot of movies owe the roots to Rocky. You know, I think uh, all of them owe it to Jaws of that, that uh, kind of ilk. All right, not to put you on the spot, but what would be Jaws is obviously the the, the, the standard for all shark movies. 
Yeah. I mean, what is another shark movie that you enjoy? My answer would be Deep Blue Sea. I think that's a lot of fun. Oh, for sure. You know, and I actually, I got to go to the premiere of The Meg last year, and it was really, really fun. And it was kind of that joint venture with China, and uh, there were some good actors. I mean, Rain Wilson was in it and a couple other really fun people. And I I thought it was well done for a modern movie. And I mean, it was was corny and it was laughy, but it was just good, you know? It was a lot of fun. Well, speaking of horror movies, because I'm a big horror movie aficionado, what's the first horror movie that you remember, like really remember watching? And how did it impact you? (laughs) No no doubt The Exorcist. Okay. And I mean, goodness, I I still have thoughts about that. And again, it's a same type of impact as the Jaws is, you know, I think you start wondering, am I going to get possessed by a demon? Or I mean, The Exorcist was, I still think, to this day, is still one of the all-time scariest movies ever made. What is your opinion on The Exorcist 3? Because I did an episode on The Exorcist in October, mm-hmm. and it was very, very popular, and I had it I had seen The Exorcist 3, 1990, a home video, didn't, mm-hmm. don't really remember it. Went back and watched it and thought it was, on a psychological level, one of the most terrifying movies I've ever seen. You know what? I'll have to go back and watch it because I think I remember seeing it. That was right about the time I was going into the Navy. And I remember it, but I, that's on my list now. And I'll go back in and watch that again. I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on that one. Any sure. thoughts on The Exorcist Part 2? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have a couple buddies that were part of the production. Okay. That stuff. They're good movies. Yeah. Uh, I I have a longtime friend of the show, Jim Hemphill, came on that episode and and vigorously defended The Exorcist. Say, just to the point where I I think the movie does deserve a reevaluation. Oh, sure. No, and all of them are great, but I think when you see something like the original one at six years old and then your 20s, 30s, I mean, you still believe in Santa Claus at six and (laughs) not any kids are out there. I'm not saying Santa Claus is not real. So that's kind of how things evolve with that. But uh, I still think the original held up where uh, it still troubles me. (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. What's the first action film you remember watching? Well, let's see here. I guess 70s. Probably Raiders of the Lost Ark with uh, Harrison Ford. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, again, the ebb and the flow of that. And there's some great characters in that movie. Um, you know, the ship's captain was uh, George Harris, who's in another favorite movie of mine. And there's just some really cool stuff with that movie. The adventure of it, the, the whole, you know, if you get into the writer's journey and some of the philosophy behind that, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark follows that journey pretty darn well. What do you think of the subsequent films in the series? I think they were good. You know, I, I like them bringing in um, Sean Connery, and I think that they kept the energy up, and I think that the circular journey uh, was there every single time. So uh, I always looked forward to those as a kid. And, I mean, things were a lot different then. There was maybe three theaters in, in Denver that you could see those, or, you know, a couple in Chicago. So, And, you know, they are making another one. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm excited to see it. I am too. I, I got to admit, like I, I saw Kingdom of the Crystal Skull day one, and I'll see whatever this one is called day one. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah. So, oh no, that's well. They, they uh, I mean, you remember when uh, Harrison Ford crashed his little plane yeah. right there? Oh my, yeah. Uh, I played the course. I used to live there. I played there the day before, and then we went a couple days and saw where it happened. I'm like, oh my god, we almost lost Han Solo. <laughs> yeah. 
that was, it was a little yeah that was a that was and, absolutely crazy i remember that was breaking news like not just on the yeah. 24-hour cable networks like all the networks were were cutting into that coverage and you just saw him in the plane on the grass like oh i mean we talk about thank goodness yeah. thank goodness no we almost okay. lost yeah dr jones and Tom solo <laughs> <No>. <laughs> So what, what's the, what's the first comedy you remember watching? And you know what do you think of the movie now? Oh man, um, well, like I said, uh, my mom used to let when I would be homesick from school and stuff, and it was on PBS. But I watched uh, all the Monty Python shows, so I remember watching the Holy Grail and uh, as a kid in theaters. And I think that it was just laugh out loud comedy. I mean, the, their setups, uh, the animation in between you know scenes and and the flow of the movie that's the one i remember is just laughing till my stomach hurt do you think holy grails from the 1970s and i Mm rewatched it maybe about a year ago Mm -hmm. i think it's funnier today than it was in the 1970s like i think it's if there's ever a comedy that holds up i think it's that one Oh, sure. I mean, I think there's just some real genius scenes of, uh, you know, like when they're arguing about the swallow carrying the coconut at the beginning, they just go off on this. I don't know if people's attention spans let them go that deep, but I tell you, like every time I think about some of those, it's so developed, their comedy. And if you look at the credits, if I remember, just the opening credits took like 10 minutes and they kept going through some jokes there. And then, you know, all of them were writers on it and all of them were so involved in it that, you know, I think they really took their, the sketch comedy routines they were doing and they made some really great movies over time. Absolutely. Going back to horror movies just for a moment, mm-hmm. I, I guess I already know the answer to this question. I wrote this questions down and I guess I already know this, mm-hmm. but you know, what's the first movie you remember really, really being terrified of now? And I, I'm assuming it's Exorcist or is there another one that, that pops into your mind? Well, and there is another one uh, that was in the 80s, the Stanley Kubrick, uh, The Shining. And the Stanley Hotel was you know, up in Nestus Park in Colorado, not too far. And we would go up there. There was a uh, there was a place up there, and uh, they had an alpine slide, and we would always go up there. But you would look up at the Stanley. I don't want to go there because it's it's haunted, you know. So, um, that, but I remember, yeah, the that uh, the Exorcist and The Shining had a heck of an impact on me. The the Stanley that was what they used for the Overlook Hotel. Mm-hmm. Correct. I, I, yeah. I, and and forgive me for not knowing this, but is still in business today. I mean, oh yeah, it, oh, oh, I've been. I was there last year, Dana. I, I mean, and they have they have their special rooms, and I've actually stayed in. And they swear two or three of them are haunted, and I I can't disagree with that. But people try to stay in the rooms, you know, where the little girls came out of, in some of the special rooms, and uh, th- they have a Starbucks in the basement that has all you know red rum and. and and shining uh, featured oh, stuff. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is the is the hedge maze hedge maze real? Is that there? Or no, is, no, that was just no. for the movie. Yeah, it was for the movie, and they did it somewhere else. And I believe that was actually in a soundstage somewhere. And then they shot like an establisher somewhere else. But no, the maze isn't there. <laughs> I wish it was. What are your thoughts on the upcoming film, Doctor Sleep? The, the follow-up to The Shining, which is supposed to, I guess, be, be canon, if you will, to Kubrick's film. 
Yeah, I mean, that's gonna that's a hard act to follow. And I, I think they have a lot of courage jumping into that because Kubrick is, I mean, come on, man. <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm anxious to see it like you, but I think that's a super ambitious uh, thing to, to follow on that. And I hope it's great. Yeah, no, I, I do too. Absolutely. <laughs> you grew up in the 80s. I grew up. Oh, in, yeah. I grew up in the, I, I was, I was born in 78. So I have, I have yeah. strong memories from the 80s. I ask you, uh, you know, four quick or rapid fire questions here, if I can. Okay. In your opinion, what is the best 80s teen comedy? Breakfast Club, hands down. Uh, that's brilliant. Okay. What is the best 80s action film? And I know this is a tough question. Mm, wow, man. Uh, oof. I'm going to say Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to say Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm going to throw a quick follow-up that's just popping into my head. Raiders of the Lost okay. Ark, I agree with you, is... Okay. I, 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 can't, I can't argue against that. I can't debate you on that. I agree with that. But having said that... In the world of 1980s with the over-the-top, you know, action stars, the, the Arnolds, the Stallones, the Rambos, and mm-hmm. all that stuff, which one, well, yeah, yeah. which one of those movies stands out to you? For me, well, it's, if it's pure 80s, it's Commando. Commando's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one, man. But yeah, I mean, if we're going to go there, Rambo, I think, was great. Um, I That movie was a life changer for me and was one of the potential, you know, spawns for me going into the military too. So yeah, that was a good one. Um, what year was Ap- Apocalypse Now? 70s, right? Yeah, I think that was 78 or 79. Yeah, right? yeah. And that's, cl- but that's one, I mean, and I've talked to, to Lawrence about that and his character, you know, on the boat at 14 years old, oh. that was one of the things that inspired me to really, to go into the military. And we, we had several conversations about that and he was telling me what it was like being 14 years old on that set and, and just uh, unbelievable stories that, that Lawrence has. Yeah. That is absolutely incredible. I mean, that is incredible. I forget, I forget how young he was in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant though. I mean, him and yeah, that Martin Sheen. I mean, that's that's another one of my all times. So, you know, when you get into it, Apocalypse Now is a really good one. The thing about that movie, Jason, is the scale of it is so overwhelming. Like the scale right. of of and you you're a filmmaker. Tell me how in 2019 do you recreate that Flight of the Valkyrie scene? with Robert Duvall. Like, how do you do that in 2019? Like, how much would something like that cost to do it practical? Oh, yeah. And see, I love practical. I'm not a big CGI guy, but I think well, I mean, <laughs> I could tell you what aircraft cost per aircraft with a pilot. And uh, I think just that one scene, millions and millions and millions. I mean, I, it might cost more than most movies that are being <laughs> that one five or ten minute scene. Uh, I I don't know if you could do that practically today unless you just had unlimited budgets <laughs> so and a lot of assets. We're talking like the budget of the new Top Gun movie, which apparently is good. 100%. Going, what, which, what's your opinion on that? You've seen the trailer on that. What do you think? Oh, you yeah. I, I'm excited to see it, man. That's another 80s. I mean, that's a defining movie. I remember going to the theater and it was so – and we had seats there. And, and I mean, we saw it three days in a row, wow. man. And I mean, it was, it was super interesting. Very rarely will I say this, but after I watched that trailer, I purposely fired the trailer up on my big screen in the living room because yeah. <laughs> I was not watching it on my phone. And right. I'm telling you right now, like, I like take my money. Like, yep. I'm all in for that. Like, that just looks amazing. 
Oh, I got to tell you. And when it plays at the theaters, people are, yeah, they're cheering. And I haven't seen that kind of emotion, but I think they're going to hit it out of the park with that one too because it's just it's anybody that was around and a teenager or youngster remember seeing the original one and what again it was a navy recruiting film and it worked man everybody and their brother wanted to go be a pilot after <laughs> and recruiting like quadrupled so it worked so, and that's the thing. It's directed by Christopher McQuarrie, who's done the last mm-hmm. couple Mission Impossible films. And, and, and like we've talked about, he likes to do things practical as much as possible. Yeah. How in the world are they getting that? Sh- you, in your opinion, how are they getting oh, the, that, the shot of Tom the, in the, yeah. uh, doing the takeoff from the carrier? That shot. Uh, man. I mean, I think they're really doing it and they mounted the cameras in there, but they, they may have had a special plane. Uh, you know, they do have two seaters and they may have had a pilot do it. Um, and again, I don't know what the budget was, but they, they may have got cooperation from the Navy. I'm going to do some checking on that and get back to you. But uh, that's what's super impactful for me is that because I've done those. I've done in C2s. I've done four shots off and landed on carriers before when I was in SEAL team. So I, I know. I mean, that looks so good. And I know that little rush you get of being shot off that carrier. So you see the point where his head, like his whole body yep. sort of jerks for a second. Yeah. T- take me through the very first time you did the, the, the shot off a carrier like what is that like well it's even scarier when you're a troop and like we we use all the assets in the military and a c2 is a prop plane you know with a ramp on it and we would use it for different things but um so that thing's not quite fast enough so you sit backwards so you know it's you have your seatbelt on and as soon as that that uh, catapult launches you you kind of split in the middle and you kind of you know you you're leaning back towards the back and then the plane dips significantly <laughs> before it catches you're like please catch please catch him you know and and heavy seas and there's so many variables with that but i got to tell you those pilots are so amazing and you know a c2 it looks like kind of a mini c130 and uh you know that's kind of what it is but it's for transporting troops and equipment and stuff and then they have the the radar versions of that but yeah, I was fortunate enough to do that quite a few times. And what, it was seemed real fun back then. <laughs> what about a carrier landing? Same thing. I mean, you see it coming in and you go from, you know, hundreds of miles an hour to zero. So you got to be in pretty good shape and, you know, have pretty good core strength to do that. And oh, that's what's so amazing about a lot of those pilots, because even like the Blue Angels, they don't use G suits and that's what they stay in. They work out six hours a day and they pull impossible maneuvers with no G suits. So, I mean, there's so much that goes into that stuff, you know, that's incredible. I mean, I'm wow. listeners. I'm sorry. I, th- I think I could dedicate the whole show just asking him questions, asking Jason questions <laughs> about this. I, I'm fascinated by that. Like, that's just incredible. So, all right. So here's, here's kind of one out of left field. What's, what's the best eighties drama? Oof. Well, I have to say there's a movie called At Close Range. Yes. And that's uh, James Foley and, you know, Christopher Walken, Chris Penn, Sean Penn, several others when they're super young. I think Kiefer Sutherland's in it and Crispin Glover. And they, I mean, that movie had a huge impact. And Madonna's uh, song is playing throughout the entire movie in the background. And yeah, I mean, I, I, as far as the drama goes, uh, I think that's one of the, it's one of my favorite of all time, really. It's a movie that I was aware of. 
Uh, I mean, I probably had seen Madonna's music video, which is basically just a trailer mm-hmm. for the movie. I've probably, probably seen that music video a hundred times over the years and only really sat down and watched it for the first time two years ago. And I can comfortably say that Christopher Walken is terrifying in that movie. Mm-hmm. He is so good. And that is not to diminish anything else that he has done. Like he, but boy, is he's, he is, he is a tour de force in that film. And, and like you've mentioned all these other actors, I would implore the listeners if you haven't seen the film, Walking alone is reason enough to see it. Like, but everybody else is terrific in the film, and it's a very good movie. So that's a great, great pick right there. Yeah, Mary Stuart Masterson. I mean, it's a love story. It's and, and I think Walking is competitive with the Deer Hunter in that. I know that's a tall order, but I have to say, man, and just that again, what a story! The way it starts, and you see the bud, the budding of the love story, and you know, small town America, and. You know, the father's a, he's a thief and, you know, they, they link up again after many, many years and he starts getting involved in the family. And it was a true story too. Yeah. And, and in Pennsylvania up in Amish country and, you know, he was a tractor thief and, uh, but I, that movie had an impact on me, you know, as far as, and then the way Foley lit some of the things or how, you know, the way he told that story was, and I used some of those light gags in Running With The Devil, actually, that, you know, because I talked to the DP and I said, you remember this scene with, you know, and he said, oh, yeah. And so we we kind of recreated a couple of those things. That's awesome. And, and listeners, uh, Jason and I are definitely going to be doing a follow up to, to Running With The Devil as far as getting into a much more in-depth discussion about the film, sort of point by point. And I'm, I, I'm really looking forward to doing that. So then I'm going to throw a question at you that <laughs> is, uh, well, you know, I feel like I know the answer. But I'd like to just kind of pick your brain a little bit about a few films that would fall into this category. So, what is the best gangster slash mafia film ever made? Oh, my gosh. Man, you're hitting me. This is tough, Dana. You're really beating me up. I mean, everybody says The Godfather, right? And I – but I would kind of – say Goodfellas is right there. And I think over time, now that it's what, I mean, is that 91 or 92, something like that? Uh, I still went over the holidays. My kids like that movie. I could watch that movie. You could say, hey, let's go watch Goodfellas right now. And I would love watching it. You know, And I've been fortunate enough to meet Joe Pesci and a couple, you know, so I think that's the best gangster movie. I have to agree with you, and I'm going to give you a reason why I agree with you. I have a very, very good friend of mine, and she admitted to me over the weekend that she had she has never seen the Godfather movies, mm. and she really wants to watch them. And so we've said, well, well, we'll sit down and we'll watch them. I have to warn her, and I have to say, hey, listen. So just so you know, these are these are three hour plus movies. They're slow burns. They take their time. Ultimately, the payoff is, is spectacular. I mean, the one two punch of both films winning Best Picture. Yes. I mean, these are incredible movies. If she says she hasn't seen Goodfellas, I'm like, all right, let's watch it right now. I don't have mm-hmm. to warn her about anything because I mean, the pace of the films are so radically different from each other. Yes. So I, 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 I guess the question is not not what's the best gangster film ever made. What's the most rewatchable gangster film ever made? And obviously, yeah. The Goodfellas. Oh, for sure. And Godfather 2 is great. And I mean, you get into what Coppola did and I watch that and the camera moves and all the stuff and you just go, wow, man, and Marlon Brando and but 
like I said, every Thanksgiving or, or Christmas or the holiday season, it, it, we sit down most times and Goodfellas is watched over those few days, happily watched. And I mean, the way it was narrated and they used voiceover with several characters. And I mean, it's just Scorsese at his best. And if you watch, like I rewatched Mean Streets the other day and you watch his evolution, there's a lot of character names that are the same. There's a lot of scenes in the way, you know, the bar scenes, and but it's just like from Mean Streets to Goodfellas, it's so refined and perfect, but there's a lot of the same stuff there, you know? And it's just amazing his voice and how amazing it's become, you know? What are you hearing about The Irishman? Are you hearing anything as far as, you know, the, the movie's slated to come out late next yep. month. So, I mean, have you heard anything about the film? Yeah, the trailer looked good. And yeah, the, there's some really good. I think it's going to be fantastic. I, I'm going to see it. And I don't care what anybody else says, you know, but I, yeah, it's getting some good buzz. And I think it's going to be a, a super. So, I mean, yeah, you got to think of just the body of work there and, and uh, it's going to be a masterpiece, I think. I, I'm really looking forward to it. And, and correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong, if you know, does this is this movie premiering on Netflix or is it, do, is it doing a dual theatrical and, and Netflix release at the same time? Well, you know, here's the interesting thing. I know Netflix just bought the Egyptian theater, which is right there in the middle of everything, and they're remodeling it. And I don't know if they have plans to have that premiere there, but that's the reason they bought it, so they could have that theatrical. And I'm not sure what the minimum number of theaters are and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the Egyptian is a great classic Hollywood theater, and uh, I've been to several premieres and things there. So, uh, there's an interesting thing there with them purchasing it. So, but I, I, I imagine, I don't know what the number is, but they still will do a hundred theaters, which barely registers with people and maybe 500. I mean, you know, you look at some of the bigger, like, what is it? Hobbs and Shaw was 4,200 or four. They go up to 5,000. The Lion King was. So I don't know what registers, but. I, I think I would love to see that. Th- that movie has to be seen in a theater. So I'm hoping that it's in dozens of theaters, you know, in town for at least a few weeks. I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I, I When The Departed came out, I was like, whoa, there mm-hmm. wasn't even a thought about, oh, I'll just wait for that to come out. No, it's no. like you've got to see something <laughs> like that in on the big screen. Uh, I don't know where I live. Uh, maybe, I mean, it, it would be worth it for me to take a drive to Tampa, which is an hour and a half away, or mm-hmm. Orlando was an hour. I mean, would I drive as far as Miami, which is four hours? Yes, I mean, yes, you would. Yes, possibly. You would. I know, po- I know you would. <laughs> possibly. Yes, you would. <laughs> possibly. <laughs> yeah, right. All right, so here's one for you. Okay. And this one, this one, I have no idea what the answer is going to be because I think it's different for everybody. But what's a favorite guilty pleasure movie of yours? <laughs> I don't know if I want to say this, Dana. Man. You won't think anything less of me. Come okay, on. okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna break the ice here a little bit. Okay, uh, okay. My friend Kristen and I we did an episode yeah. on guilty pleasure films, and I okay. openly admit it to enjoying the first four Police Academy movies. So it's okay. <laughs> it's it's okay. <laughs> well, okay. So I can't say this is a bad movie, but it's I don't think people think oh ex Navy Seal all this stuff, but can't buy me love. Yeah. Is like I I that's another movie that gets watched over and over again, and I think my high school experience was similar to that, and just that story, the way it was told, I could again. That's another movie. You said, "Hey, let's go watch that right now." I would enjoy it <laughs> extremely. Right now. So, but I don't tell too many people that I love that movie. We'll, we'll keep that between us, Jason. Not to worry. <laughs> 
<laughs> and all the listeners. That's okay. That's okay. What a transition uh, Patrick Dempsey had from his awkward yes. teenage years to, to where he is now. So, 100%. And th- there's some great, I mean, great moments in that movie, man. And again, what a story to tell. And it's so fun to watch. You know what's going to happen at this point, but I still, every time, you know, it's it's just a gripping movie, you know? I have I don't- best time when he when they do their breakup in front of everybody like it's just the best <laughs> the lines he uses oh yeah <laughs> I love well it. no it, it his transition you know and his little brother uh it just the funny stuff of how you know kids going out and trying to be cool walking down the cool hallway and all that. i mean they, we had all that stuff at my high school it was so similar how things were you know absolutely i gotta rewatch that it's been a few years i gotta watch yeah. listen i don't i don't think there's any that's you, you, it's fine to tell everybody. I think there's, I think a lot of people our age love that movie. So sure. Now this is a question I've been really dying to ask you. Okay. Okay. And that is based on your experiences, what military film based on your experience gets it right more so than other military films? Well, wow, man. That's, I mean, uh, some of them get it. Uh, you know, I, I was in at the time of American Sniper and Chris Kyle and I were great friends and I'm super close to that story. And I think Clint Eastwood did a really good job of telling it. And then I also know the story of Zero Dark Thirty. And I mean, look, movies have to be it, it is what it is. Like Ron Howard said, if you just in Apollo 13, if you just show the astronauts, they're calm, they're cool. You know, you got to throw those dramatic beats in there. So I think even the most accurate military movie is only going to be about 50% right, but you have to throw that drama in there. But honestly, in my opinion and my combat deployments and all the things I saw as a SEAL, uh, I think Saving Private Ryan and what Spielberg did, hands down, the the just tension of being alive one second or dead the next. And, you know, like they let the German soldier go and it comes back to haunt him and just how cheap life gets. He captured what that is like, I, I, I can't even, it's just, it still blows me away. And Tom Hanks is just as good as it gets. And, you know, again, I had Adam Goldberg and Barry Pepper. And I was so glad that those guys are just off the chain in that movie. Too. I mean, you know, it's And did you get to, did you talk to, to Adam and Barry about the, about their experiences uh, making the film? hundred percent, man. And that, that's, I mean, they got, tell me one bad thing about saving private. I mean, that, that movie is so intense. And, and again, the time that they took the attention to detail, and the sound of the bullet and just those types of things. And, uh, you know, I have my father and two uncles that were in World War Two, and um, it's it just super intense, man. And I, I think as far as a movie goes, and again, no movie can capture it. It's if they get it 50 percent right, it, that's a home run to me. But I think that he got it. 60 percent or more what were you doing in 98 when that film came out i was in steel team i I think i was on deployment uh somewhere in the world and we got to watch it and uh, it was intense man i mean yeah super intense were you as surprised as most people that Shakespeare and Love won Best Picture over that film? A hundred percent. I mean, that's, I don't even want to talk about that. Or yeah. My blood, my blood pressure just went up a bunch. But, you know, it's the politics of dancing. And I think that happens quite a bit. And I understand. And the best war films are anti-war films. I mean, and that's that's the point. I think a lot of people um, 
don't grasp is, I mean, because it's, look, I paid a heavy toll in those wars and it's tough and nobody likes it. But I think that that whole Saving Private Ryan, he captured that, the impact and just the sacrifices that people make in warfare. As far as the movie goes, that's as close as it gets in my book. Excellent. So is there a popular military film that just gets it completely wrong? (laughs) (laughs) where do we begin <laughs> that list is long and distinguished dana uh i'm just let's just leave it at gi jane and say nothing else about that because okay. i was again i uh, i was i remember um it's just the whole story of that and i was again i was a seal at that time and they were trying to get information and coming in there and i guess it's an entertaining film but they got a lot of stuff so wrong that a lot of them do, and it seems like they fill in, people fill in the blanks with uniforms, with gunfires, like you'll have a colonel saluting an E5, or just stuff where people in the military go, what? How did you not do your homework on that? And just getting huge events wrong and historical things. It's supposed to be a historically accurate movie, but there's a ton of them, and you know, I, I mean, I'd say most of them get it horribly, horribly wrong, but I, I, I guess... You have to look at the purpose of seeing the movie. If it's entertaining, there are some funnier military movies or war movies. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think most of them are just way off track. What do you think of The Hurt Locker? Uh, you want to know the truth? I've never seen it. Okay. And and I've, I know I met Catherine Bigelow. And honestly, I've heard stuff about it. And that was I was on deployment. That was one of the meat and potatoes of some of the big Iraq deployments I was doing. So when I came back, I wasn't really interested in sure. watching war movies. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I've never seen it. And I've talked to some people. And they go, ah, don't, you shouldn't see it. And I don't know if it's because... They think it's too close to my real experience as, you know, being a SEAL and combatter. I don't know, but I just, I've let that one go. And maybe I should sit down and watch it at some point because I do like Jeremy Renner. And Catherine Bigelow is great. So. Yeah, no, she was, I was about to ask you what, what she like because she just seems very, she seems very larger than life. Like, and just, she seems no, amazing. I'm- yeah, I, I've been lucky enough. She executive produced a, a documentary, and the name escapes me right now, but it was about the cartels in Mexico. And I got to meet her at that time. We sat and talked for a long time because, you know, we started talking, and I told her I was in SEAL team, and I was starting to make movies. And she just, boom, gave me all. It was great. I got to talk to her for a long time about, you know, the Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty and some of the people that we knew and had some friends in common and – um yeah, she's a she's as solid as they get. I mean, you know, it's it's great. Yeah, I I agree. And uh, she's another uh, day one when the film comes out. Whatever she makes, I I make it a point to to go see it. I think. Sure. I mean, I mean, let's let's not lest we forget. You know, she she made Point Break. You know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. I mean, come on, Keanu, Utah, make it too. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> No, I know that's and I, I don't know why uh, I don't even want to say I don't know why they remade that because oh. things happen, but but I mean Point Break is just one of those. Just let it go, let it be. It's it was so you're never going to recreate that, you know. Uh, I mean. and, and you know Swayze's <laughs> really jumping out of the planes in a couple of those yeah. scenes, and it's just yeah, I mean yeah. it's incredible. Well, it, so I got to tell you that's the one thing that most again back to military people. And I was a free fall instructor and I have almost 4,000 jumps. And you know, so that is the longest skydive in the history of skydiving. And you can't talk to each other, but it's fun because right. it's part of the movie. But 
and someone who's that, you know, novice at skydiving, you don't get that good that fast, but then also just talking to each other and some of the things with the skydiving, but it's still fun, but just know that it's a lot faster and harder. That's it. <laughs> so, so it's more yeah. realistic that he learned to surf after four days. Than- oh, well, oh, exactly. <laughs> yeah, learning to skydiving. I'm like, what a stud, man. How do you do that? It took me like seven years to get real good. <laughs> I got to do a lot of it, you know? So yeah, that's just funny. Let's let's go into a couple more influences for you. Okay, you know, as as a filmmaker, I mean, is there is there okay. a particular filmmaker that has that has basically influenced you the most? I mean, is there somebody? I mean, you are you're going to do your own thing. You have your own style, and 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 I'm telling you, the listeners, when you see this movie Running with the Devil, you're going to understand what I mean by saying that. So you have your own thing. But but are, are, is there a filmmaker that's that's influenced you the most? There's a bunch, and I mean it's it's a bit of a hybrid. But to say one, I mean I like Robert Wise and some of the stuff that he's done, and that might be a little surprising to you. Some of the older you know stuff he did, I really like Matthew Vaughn, and uh, he's I, I've watched a lot of stuff he's produced and directed. But I Clint Eastwood as well. I love Stanley Kubrick. Scorsese, obviously Quentin Tarantino. So I just, I've studied all of them and their paths and what got them to where they are. So I mean, and look, all of them say it. Tarantino admittedly rips from other people. And so does Scorsese. They're like, it's flattering. We encourage you to do it. And, and I love Spielberg's lens selection and how simple, I mean, that guy shoots huge movies with like three lenses, maybe like 80% of them on one. So to learn those things to me is just is there's genius in all of them. And I think we're in a great era because you can look back now and then look, I mean, Matthew Vaughn, I think he's younger than me. Uh, and there's just, there's decades now of, of just brilliant filmmakers that you can draw from. And if you take those little things from all of them, it's, it's good. And Clint Eastwood, how little he moves the camera, how efficient he is. And he gets it, man. You know, I mean, there's a lot. I study him a lot. Is there a favorite Clint Eastwood directed film? Oh, Mystic River. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I still don't know how he did it. But if you watch that, I think he moved the camera like once. You know? <laughs> and I'm exaggerating, but you know what I'm saying. And you go, how did he do that, man? And everything just comes to the camera. And it's really, that's another gripping film, man. And, and uh, I, that's another one I watch on the regular to just, and I see something a little different every time I watch it. We're going to play a little devil's advocate real quick. Mm-hmm. We're going to play a little hypothetical, a little what if. Uh, and okay. and I put this under the guise of, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of remakes. I think, right. I think, like you said, we should leave well enough alone in a lot of cases. However, that being said, if you had an opportunity to remake a classic film and budget was not a concern, what would you remake? Oof. Well, how far? I mean, what? What? <laughs> who considers what classic, man? I mean, it's classic seventies. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's no, it's an open question. Or even maybe eighties. Oh boy. Well, see, I got to tell you a couple of them. I'm going to talk to you offline because I'm actually negotiating to try to get the rights for a couple seventies. Awesome. But uh, if I'm going to go way back to a classic, classic, I think. Uh, Sand Pebbles with Steve McQueen w- was, uh, that's a great movie, man. I mean, and that was so big. Again, Robert Wise, it was so big that 
I don't know if you could make it that big nowadays, but I, they went to, again, the mystical Orient and, you know, it's supposed to take place in the 20s. And I mean, I think that thing won at least half a dozen Oscars, if not more, man, but just the bigness. And I think it was Candace Bergen's uh, first or second movie, maybe. And I mean, it, it, Steve McQueen was brilliant. And th- there was just some great things about that movie. Awesome. That's interesting. I, was, I wasn't sure how far back you were going to go with that answer, but that's well, good. All right. So now if I want to say what's possible and what I might, but again, you put this out there. So I want to, oh, we're going to do it instead. But right. I think, uh, if I'm going 80s and I think it's good and with something possible, maybe live and die in LA. Absolutely. Would be a solid remake. <laughs> it's, it's, it, you know, and that's the thing. I don't want to say that I'm. I don't want to say that I'm against remakes because I'm not. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, they've been remaking and retelling stories for as, as long as we've been around. Oh, so, for so. sure. But I mean, look at uh, A Star is Born. That was the third remake. Yeah. That's a great movie, man. Absolutely. Oscar noms and super solid. So, of course. I, I guess it's not my complaint. I, I don't have a complaint about remakes. I have a complaint that that's all we're getting. In in, in big theatrical releases, remakes and sequels. That's where my complaint is because some of my, there's some movies I love that were, that were remakes. Right. Well, but that's, see, that's what I'm striving to do, Dana. And I just wrote another script called Opioid Nation and we're getting ready to go into production, uh, early next year, maybe late this year, but we're, we started casting and it's coming together great. But again, it's an original story about, and that's what I'm striving to do as a writer director, which is a dying breed is to create original stories. And, you know, it's, uh, that's what I want to do ultimately. And I agree with you about the remakes, but there are some, I've got a long list of 60s, 70s and 80s movies that should be, but I, I understand it too, because they're looking for safe things and there's so much money involved. And, and now, I mean, you can drill down your marketing so channeled and with social media and everything. And I think we're just all in a giant experiment right now to yeah. see what's going to work. And if they have the ability to go up, oh, that didn't work or that didn't work. And I think people are shocked about the kitchen right now. I mean, that was teed up to be huge. And I think it had, if I, if I remember reading this morning, it had kind of a mediocre release and, and you know, look at that cast, look at that director, yeah. look at that. And you go, wow, man, you know, what happened there? So. I drove past, I was driving, I was driving to meet a friend yesterday and drove past a local small movie theater and up on the marquee, it just said the kitchen. I was like, oh, I didn't even realize that was coming out this weekend. Yeah. Like I could, like the marketing was almost non-existent for that film, I think, at least in yeah. my area here. No, no, I think, and that's, that's the biggest thing. Cause like, you know, people say, oh, the movie gets made three times you write it you produce it you edit it but you also have to market it man if people don't if you can't get asses in seats if you don't have buses and billboards and front end trailers and you know look over here look over here and that's why as well you see some really really unwatchable movies and you go oh they made 35 million opening weekend and that's because they just flood it with marketing so that's the balance i think everybody's looking for because it is a big commitment and in some cases the marketing is uh is greater than the budget of the movie it seems that way and you what you said there was incredibly interesting about we about being sort of in a big experiment now because this is completely different than how I remember the nineties and even the two thousands, like the, sure. just the way things are right now. It's just, it's, it's a science now for these big theatrical release film. Like everything mm-hmm. is, a, it's, 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 
and I can't, I'm, I don't, I'm not in the industry, so I can't speak to it, but it just seems like there's a formula. Oh, you're, you're in the industry. You're, an, you're more of an expert on a lot of things than me, man. Come on. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> but it, it, it seems to me that there's a, they seem to have a formula for releasing these big tentpole films and they don't seem to want to stray away from it. And I feel like right. we're losing those $30 million budget movies that would make, you know, three times their money back. And be, why would a studio spend 30 million to make a hundred million when they can spend three to make a billion? Right. Well, so in my experience, and this is what, you know, I've gleaned and I may be totally wrong, but nobody's really, except for those 10, 15 tentpole movies a year, nobody's banking on a U.S. theatrical release anymore. Because I've had people go, well, how many theaters is running with the devil? I'm like, eh, maybe a hundred, but it gets to the point where you, it's all about the foreign markets. Most movies do not get greenlit unless the foreign markets make sense. And there's X number, just say there's 50 foreign. I don't know if it's there's 50, there's 43. Some of them are combined. There's different people that have different answers. But unless it is one of those, everyone banks on the foreign market. Now, foreign values are very subjective because you can get three estimates on your movie from three different sales companies and they're going to be wildly different. So it's a guessing game. And here's what I think is tough is everyone speculates, but at the end of the day, not too many people are held accountable. For that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And you'll watch those guys at the beginning and they'll go, no, I swear the Broncos are going to win. Broncos, Broncos, I'll bet my, and then the Broncos get slaughtered and then no one goes, Hey, you were wrong, man. So I think it's, it's really tough to, to hold someone accountable, but you watch the opinions of what's going to happen. And, uh, you know, as you get deeper and deeper in this, no one knows because there was movies like Black Swan that were buried and over and they were done. And then they got rid of everybody and recast it and added money to it. And it won Oscars. So uh, I've heard that over and over and over again at every single level, you never know what's going to happen ever, even on Hobbs and Shaw. And I think in Tarantino's, I think people breathe a sigh of relief and go, Oh, we knew it, but they didn't really know. <laughs> you know they didn't really know. And, and uh, you know, you could speculate, obviously Tarantino with his career behind him, probably people are going to go watch that movie. But I mean, there's been some really great movies that, just you kind of go, wow, what happened there? And I don't know what the secret sauce is because I haven't seen the kitchen yet, but I just know it had a really bad opening weekend. And I, I don't know why, but it seems like the universe, you know, once I've never been surprised and gone, oh, wow, that movie was fantastic. I wonder why it didn't make any money this weekend. So, I mean, it, people could word gets out somehow, you know. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I'm telling you, it's a, it's a very interesting time that we're living in right now, and what's, for sure, and we're and we're, we're able to sort of recognize it and see what's going on. But uh, again, I want to stress, like, there's still a lot of really good movies that are coming out. Yes, that's the oh, thing. Oh, hundred percent. You just got to know where to find them. I mean, um, I saw the art of self defense. Did you have you seen that yet? I, I haven't had an opportunity to see. You got to go. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and you just got to look. And I find there's and there's a lot more indie theaters here in, in L.A. And I mean, you kind of if you know where to look on the certain websites and the trailers coming out and that kind of stuff, and you can follow. But there's some great films, man, and just follow what's going on in the uh, festival circuit as well. You know. Well, I, I want to take this opportunity to ask you, I've already done an episode, I've already released an episode on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and if I have one thing I would have done differently, I wouldn't have recorded it two hours after seeing the movie. Because that, Interesting. Because it's marinated for two mm -hmm. weeks now. Wow. And I can tell you that my opinion of the film 
uh, has gotten stronger. And I, if you listen to that episode, I wasn't negative about the movie at mm-hmm. all. I said I understood why some people, why there was a little bit of divisiveness about the film. Mm-hmm. But I, the more I, I get away from it, the more I want to see it again. So, I'm going to pass it over to you. What did you think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Well, I did see it again. It's funny you say that because I've seen it. And I'll go see it for a third time because I saw you see something different every time. But I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think he captured the time, the music, the style perfectly. And I, what was going on in Hollywood? And I know it was framed as, you know, the Manson family and the Tate murders and all that. But his take, and I don't want to spoil anything for someone, but his take on it was genius as usual, you know. And I'm already excited about the potential four-hour Netflix version that's supposed to be coming out. So um, I'm letting it marinate as well. I saw it and I waited a week and I saw it again. And I got to tell you, you, you're, you're going to see something a lot differently because you're not going to be expecting anything. The first time I saw it, I expected, oh, I know what's going to happen. And you get there like, you know, but once you know, you know, and you don't expect anything, it kind of opens you up to a whole different experience watching it. And that can be true of a lot of Quentin Tarantino films. I, I openly admitted that the first time I saw The Hateful Eight, I was like, yeah, I guess. And then I think it's a masterpiece now. And I've seen mm-hmm. it 10 times and I could watch it another 10 times. And I think I, I, I think what Tarantino is so brilliant about is setting up certain expectations. And then when you watch it, ripping those expectations exactly. away from no, that's, that's my point. So yeah. that's where the first time I go, oh, I know what he's going to do here. I th- you know, And then you go, oh. Okay. And you just, that keeps happening and happening. And I think you miss half the film or half of what's going on by your anticipation. And then, like you said, I let it marinate a week and I went back and and I went, oh, wow, wait a second. And I'm excited to see it for a third time. I'm going to try to see it again before, you know, it'll be in theaters for a little while longer, I suppose. My co-host on that episode, Kristen, she she came out of the theater just loving the movie, just Mm -hmm. absolutely loving it first time. And I came out a little bit sort of, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But now, away, two weeks away from him, it's like, no, it's brilliant. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's well, a brilliant film. And what you said about letting in, I think most people do that. And look, you're never going to keep everybody happy. And you're never, you know, the, the critic stuff, is, it's just funny. And it, it's always going to be controversial. But if you look at some of his best things and i think he captured that time and there's some camera moves and things that he does in that movie where i'm like wow man this is wow (laughs) and again dicaprio brad pitt i mean that's wow that was my favorite brad pitt performance that he's ever done yeah i I think so he was the he was quintessential cool i have to ask you there's been a lot of controversy around the bruce lee scene we won't get into the particulars of that (laughs) but 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 i i remember kind of looking over at Kristen and kind of kind of whispering and breaking the rule of never talking in a theater which is something i i'm so (laughs) adamant about but yeah. I remember sort of just leaning in and saying, that's not going to play well for some people. And, mm-hmm. and, and I'm curious your thoughts on that scene. Well, well I love Bruce Lee, man. Yeah. And Enter the Dragon is one of my all-time favorites. And that had a huge impact on me. And I love what Bruce Lee stands for and yeah. all of his philosophies. And I, I've studied him. I, I, you know, I love him. And I get that. And it's, but that's Tarantino's vision of that time. And there is credible evidence that Bruce Lee was a little bit cocky, you know, and uh, I would be cocky if I was Bruce Lee. Sure. So, sure. You know, so who cares? But, but I think it's, it's, it's a caricature of 
whatever it is. And I mean, yeah, I like the controversy, man. It's there's no bad press, right? And I, I think the scene was well done. It was funny, and I mean, would a stunt man a whip Bruce Lee's ass? I don't know. But, you know, and that whole thing, I know Bruce Lee had the ultimate respect for Muhammad Ali, and that would have never been a, a thing. So, I mean, look, I, who knows what's in Tarantino's head when he writes that or you know, where that came from. But I still think it, it fit the movie. It seemed cool. It, you know, but like you said, I went, uh oh. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait to see what everybody says about this. Yeah. I mean, it worked, man. It's been, yeah. It's been, I, I'm, I'm going to be, I think this one, this film's going it, to, it's going to be right up there amongst his best. And that's a, mm-hmm. that's a pretty interesting thing to say because he hasn't made a bad movie. Oh, no, listen, and that, his movies, honestly, it's only made nine, but you throw in True Romance and, you know, a couple of the ones that Scott did a brilliant job directing True Romance, yeah. but there, I can remember almost every place I was watching those movies. I was in Australia when Pulp Fiction came out, you know, Reservoir Dogs. It's like times of your life, you know, and I just remember how different Reservoir Dogs was at the time and everyone went, man, who is this guy? What is this? And brilliant, you know, so you're right. I think he's, he's, uh, he's one of a kind, man, for sure. If you could watch any movie on the big screen again or for the first time, what movie would that be? Oh boy. For the first, I'd say Bridge Over the River Kwai for the first time, for sure. And then again, probably because I remember that. Wow. Maybe Mystic River again on the big screen, but Bridge Over the River Kwai, just because, again, the bigness of those movies. And that's another war movie that, I mean, if you get down to what it is, that probably got it pretty right as well. You know, the structure and discipline and some of the the core values uh, of the military, I think that the Bridge Over the River Kwai. Excellent. All right. All right. Excellent. A lot of people listen to this show are interested in filmmaking. A lot of them mm-hmm. are, are, are interested in the process. Uh, it's a very unique time in 2019 to get sure. into filmmaking. I mean, yes, I look is. at some of the, some of the previous directors that I've had on the show. Uh, Phil Joano talked to me about his experiences going through, you know, USC film school in the eighties. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jim Hemphill talked about going through wow. film school in the nineties. And, and I'm not talking about film school in general, but I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious in 2019, what advice or, you know, for lack of a better term, inspiring in words could you give to somebody who's 19, 20 years old and they've decided that they know that being a filmmaker and being a storyteller is what they want to do. I mean, what advice could you give at this point in 2019? Well, I mean, in simplest terms, yeah. Uh, go to Hollywood and die doing it. <laughs> you yeah. have to be that committed. Great don't answer. say, don't say if this, then that, or I'll give it an expiration date because there's 10,000 people getting off the bus here every day and there's 10,000 getting right back on. And it's a tough business. So, I mean, learn the business too. And don't, I mean, again, the creative stuff is there. If that's, if you have that knack as a writer, director, then do that and stay true to your voice the whole time. Don't let the industry or teachers or, or anyone sway you from your authentic voice because everybody has that. But I think they try to drone it into, you know, well, we want this to happen then in the studio levels. And they try to, you know, tell you how to do it. And I've gone through several people in my short career already that have said, well, if you want to do this, then you need to do it like this. And I said, no. So, you know, stay true to your voice. Everybody has a unique and beautiful voice. So use it. But also 
it is show business and you have to learn. I spent a lot of time learning how movies are bought and sold and why people are buying and selling certain movies and being realistic because I think a lot of people coming out of film school and I didn't go to film school, they're teaching them to do a $100 million studio level stuff and very few people ever get to do that. And, you know, you have to learn. So so I think they never, they it's an all or nothing thing. Oh, if I'm not getting a job at Warner Brothers or Sony, uh, well, what am I going to do? But you can make a movie if you have the talent. Again, my first movie, I made it for $100,000 in 10 days and it got distributed. You know? So, I mean, there where there's a will, there's a way. And if you want to be a filmmaker, don't make a short movie. Make a 90-minute or whatever it is so it can be released. Tell that story, but learn how, how and where it's getting sold, how it gets distributed, how the producers get the money to make the movie, what gets a movie greenlit. What you know, because you're, you're unrealistic. Oh, I need two, five, ten million dollars to make this movie, but you don't have anything that's bankable. You don't have a cast that's bankable or a story that's bankable. And then, number one, start with the great story. Because if you don't have a great story, you don't have anything. Awesome. That's outstanding. That's really good. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jason, thanks for coming on the show. Yes, sir. Th- I enjoy it every time. Th- thanks for doing this. If you haven't had an opportunity to see Running with the Devil yet, it's something you need to do right now. And now it's available video on demand. It's a really a special film. And it's one that I really enjoyed watching. And I've seen it twice now. And I implore you to watch the movie. Jason, you did an amazing job on that film. Oh, thank you, Dan. No, it was good. Challenging, uh, but it was good. And I really appreciate your support. And yeah, everybody go see the movie, man. And listen to Dana's show. This is the best best movie show on the podcast. I appreciate that. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, uh, the show is at Dana Buckler Show. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Dana Buckler. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's at the Dana Buckler Show. And if you want to email the show with questions or comments, it is at the Dana Buckler Show at gmail.com. All right, Jason, we're going to talk soon. Thank you, sir. I look forward to it. Uh, as do I. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.